This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And hi, I'm Paul. We're going to talk about Glory Road, a 1963-1964 science fiction novel. First published in Fantasy and Science Fiction in July through September 1963. Um, I, I guess I'm saying it's a 64 because it was nominated for a Hugo in 64, but I guess that makes it a 63. Um, I read this at least once before, and I think it might be one of those books that is better in memory than it is in in reading. But it's still Heinlein, and so it's still worth reading. But it's also horrible because Heinlein can be horrible. But it's also <laughs> so good. And it's also Heinlein, so it's really annoying. <laughs> okay, that that's it, folks. Thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs> really? I mean, I, I tweeted something about, you know, this week. If you were to uh, find these books in the public domain, there would be, um, uh, I think people would pay cash money to have somebody go in and edit out all the stupid parts because he is so annoying when he's being annoying that it's like, it's like I was enjoying this book and now you're wrecking it. Why are you doing that? But he can't help himself. It's, it's, it's built into him. And maybe everyone else doesn't have this problem, but I think they do. Did you have any problems with this book? Uh, unfortunately, just... Go, looking back on the ages of memory, it's not as good as previous reads and rereads of it. I'm I'm up I'm up to number five or six as far as having read this over my lifetime. A lot and a lot because I try to focus on the good things, but every time I read and reread this, I find more things that go. Wait, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> huh? And we should, we should discuss the things, and maybe they're similar, maybe they're not, that make you go, well, wait a minute. Well, well what are you doing here, Mr. Heinlein? This is not quite This is not quite kosher. This is not quite proper. Nah, definitely not. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for cross-universe stories. I have been since I was handed Amber at a very early age. So, I mean, and this is a cross-universe story, so... I always have an affection for it on that basis alone because that's part that's one that's one of my eternal jams in in reading. So there is uh, uh, talking about cross universes. There is a sequel to this book. Did you know that? Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there are no reviews. I, I searched and searched and searched for any reviews of this sequel. I don't know if it's an actual sequel, but the title is Fate's Trick. In the world of Robert Heinlein's Glory Road, a novel. And it's in a series of books called A Crossroads Adventure. And basically what they do is they they take some author's universe and then they say, hey, we are doing another book. Um, This is by Matthew J. Costello. It came out in 1988. Never been reprinted. No reviews exist. (laughs) Oh, I had to to Google, Google this. Oh, my God. Oh, only three left in stock for $133. Yeah, look at the prices. It's because, you know, 
it didn't get enough printing. Nobody bothered across, to keep a copy. I'm a crossroads adventure. What the hell is a crossroads adventure? So this is book fourteen in a fourteen book series. Um, this is the only one with Heinlein. The rest are Silverberg or other other authors. It was some sort of uh, I guess tour. Uh, let's bootstrap what we've got and make it better. Um, series. I'm looking now. I'm I'm looking at. I here here we are, listeners, live googling, <laughs> live Amazoning. Let's see. There's a crossword adventure for Xanth. God, why? Magipore. Okay, I could see that. Um, but written by other is, people, right? That's written the by thing. other people. Well, this this one's written by Jolie Lynn Nye, which is really interesting. For Pern, which is like she's a good author now. Like, why is she writing? What? Maybe this is back then. Back in the day, Christopher Stashev, Bruce, uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and this is number fourteen, the last of the series. I don't know if it killed it off or what. Uh, Tom Wham, which is not a yeah. So yeah, so apparently this was a thing in the eighties, and I missed this train entirely. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? Okay, perfect. Aha! Because I found one that had a little bit of more description. Mm-hmm. These aren't novels, Jesse. The Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah, they are. I knew that as well. Um, okay, we, we hadn't told li- listeners that, and I didn't realize that. So, yeah, so I'm looking at one called Prospero's Isle, a crossroad adventure in the world of Elspreg the Camp and Fletcher Prince, including Enchanter. The reader's decisions will determine whether Harold Shea, a psychologist, Belphoebe's wife, and Michael Polachek, a colleague, can escape from the evil witch Sycorax. So, yeah, so these are so apparently they made a Choose Your Own Adventure book set in Glory Road's universe. Which is totally fitting with this book if you if you totally i mean this is as close to it i mean heinlein has a lot of sort of things that could be choose your own adventures and other you know all of his juveniles basically could be choose your own adventures uh have spacesuit will travel is basically a choose your own adventure except you only follow one path right um so I, i'm it's surprising to me that it took up to book 14 to get the the heinlein book out and this only lasted a year uh between 87 and 88 the series but i i would guess licensing was the main issue and that's probably yeah, also which is why, why they've never been reprinted yeah yeah it's but it's also probably why um they didn't get a a lot of reviews you know people don't tend to review those choose your own adventure books unless they are the one they you know loved as a kid and 88's not the right time for most people. <laughs> that That's the end, No, I was 17 at the time. I'd long since given up Choose Your Own Adventure totally. books by that point. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was from the era of the original, the original set from, you know, like Cave of Time and stuff like that. I mean, I dropped off before even, say, authors like Ellen Kushner, who would go on to write lots of novels, started writing Choose Your Own Adventure. That was, I was long since off the train by that point, so... Mm-hmm. I um I, I want to also point out that there's some weird um there's some weird conclusions people make uh, on the TV tropes. You know, TV tropes is kind of like Wikipedia for uh, I don't know tropes. So you oh, can't yeah. you can't uh, wholly trust the, the conclusions people make there. Um, the difference being on Wikipedia, there's citations. There doesn't seem to be any citations here. Um, so one of the ones that struck me on this on the Glory Road, which of course is going to be full of tropes because it is a tribute novel as well, right? This is 
Heinlein explicitly saying, um, I loved those books I read as a kid, and here's a list of them, right? Yeah, kind of thunk. Right. So, I mean, the entry for Dagwood Sandwich. (laughs) Oscar offers to create one for a girl he meets at a party on center. Primitive Earth culture having at, at least this novelty to offer. That's true. That's in the book, right? Yeah, that's in the book. I remember that. It's like, mm, primitive, good art. <laughs> right. I and believe it's the way she had. It's like, great. Yeah, the, the advanced people find a primitive sandwich, good art. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it also says brain uploading. And I'm like, what? And then, oh, no. The egg contains the recording recorded memories of thousands of emperors and empresses. Part of each emperor's job is to use the egg to imprint himself with the memories of all the predecessors and leave their own memories in turn. That's in the book. 100%, right? Um, now listen to this one. Uh, covers always lie. Just like the tunnel in the sky and the cat who walks through walls, this book features an African-American protagonist in the book, but a ca- Caucasian protagonist on the cover. Wait, what? Hey, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember that part, but I'm thinking maybe the reason they think that is because of the the FNSF covers. So the first cover uh, has Robin Hood-looking dude, uh, blonde princess, and little bald guy, right? And then the yeah. second one has a black guy on the cover. And then the third one, uh, that is, the I guess, the September, uh, no, the August issue, has a black guy on the cover. And then the third one is back to the white guy. Um, but as far as I can tell, this is not a case where Heinlein makes the character... Uh, oh, surprise black guy at the end, or yeah, surprise not, Filipino at the end. Troopers. Yeah, it's not Sasha Troopers. He's done I mean, it he in other like... ones. In Tunnel in the Sky, the main character's black. Um, but we don't yeah. find that out until quite late, I think. Yeah, I mean, he talks about having a deep tan, but yeah, he is n- not cocky. He's not uh, African American in the least. And the other thing is, is uh, if this was, um, if this is. What's so funny is, unlike most Heinlein stories and novels, this is set in contemporary United States for for the beginning and the ending, right? And oh, yeah. If, if he's supposed to be a black man, um, that is not showing up, like, that is not the United States. There's no kind of um, cultural assumptions going on. Uh, the, he's not treated like a black man in 1963 uh, United States. So that or would even be a big shot. Army, yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's just just that. Just, I mean, I mean, the scene at the end where he's wandering around carrying the sword, a black man in 1963 America carrying a sword. Um, yeah, Oscar Gordon would have been shot. Yes, uh, I mean, the thing is, is Heinlein's a weirdo, so it's really hard to know. What he's doing, but I, as far as I can tell, there's no evidence for that in the book. I was surprised to read that. Um, it is TV tropes. They made an error. I think that's what's going on. But, you know, he totally does that all the time, right? One of the things that uh, I had a problem with, Paul, this week is you said something to me like, what was it? Um, Have you got to the part where you you get the realization yet or whatever it is i'm like okay i wonder when it's coming and i'm like on the last page i'm like it must be soon <laughs> so oh, well, how, real, how is it real, you put it realization um oh, big no, surprise 
No, no, it wasn't a surprise. It was the the key scene, the key scene in the book, I believe, that I was talking about. Okay, what what is that key scene? Because I'm not okay. sure what you're talking about. I'll, I'll, I mean, we'll we'll skip the introduction for a moment, but I'm going to read the opening lines of the book mm-hmm. because it's a quotation, and then you tell, then maybe if you think about it, you tell me what's the key scene in this novel. Britannia's shocked. Caesar, this is not proper. The artist outraged. How? Caesar, pardon the artist. He is a barbarian and thinks that the customs of his tribe and island are the laws of nature. Caesar and Cleopatra, Act Two, George Bernard Shaw. Thinking on that, what is the key scene in this book, Jesse? I have no idea. <laughs> I failed as it's, best. It's the it's his experience with the Doral. Okay. That, I mean. I mean, yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, he, 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 I mean, by having this quotation from Caesar and Cleopatra at the beginning of the book, and then having that scene, highlight. It's my contention that Heinlein wrote this book to write that scene and have that discussion about about customs and morality. That's that's what the, the, this book is. Yes, it's a tribute to lots of other lots of things, but this book is in the heart about. Laws of customs versus laws of nature, and that's encapsulated in oh, that sure, scene. Sure, yeah. That's well, what this I, book. This is that book. This is the heart of that book. This is this is definitely a theme that he's obsessed with, um, the, uh, or as they put it, how did they put it on um, TV tropes? Really, really nice um, way of describing Heinlein's problem. Uh, author tract, that's what they call it. The broader setting seems to exist largely to praise Heinlein's favored views of society, particularly in the political and sexual realms. Large portions of the novel are devoted to long speeches on the subjects. Now, that's yeah. a little bit uncharitable because they're not speeches. They are crappy um, dialogues where one character says, I'm going to spank you. And the other one says, I'm highly offended. Here's a long speech. And the other one says, I apologize, you know, <laughs> and it goes on like that for a few pages. They walk a few <laughs> steps and then they have another conversation like that where some somebody's personal morality is tripped and triggered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then triggered. I, I start tearing the book apart and throwing it across the room. Right. That's uh, that's my big problem. So, yeah, he absolutely he absolutely is obsessed with this. I mean, that's what a lot of his books, especially his later books, are all about, right? Is they spend yeah, I would, I would say I would say post Starship Troopers. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, even in Starship Troopers, it's in every book. It's just right. whether it's the focus or, or right. Not. It becomes it, it, yeah, it becomes uh, yeah, it becomes foreground in everything else. Everything starting the '60s to the end. I'm going to marry you. No, we can't get married. Let's get married. Okay. That's the conversation <laughs> that goes on for 14 pages. Um, and then they get the priest and they have to argue with him. They, they, they try that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The rumor monger. The rumor monger is funny. To go into the priest business themselves because he's doing such a bad job. He's like, this is, uh, he. he's out of control. This is Heinlein losing control. But he's so good when he's good that you can you totally forget about the bad bits when you're not when you wait five years or whatever, right? Which is why I suggested, yeah, why don't we listen? Why don't we try this one? Because it's been it was August 2013 the last time I consumed this book, which was on. That's a long time ago. It, it was I was driving 
from Iowa to to uh, Colorado for my Colorado trip, and I needed audiobooks to get through the banality of Iowa and Nebraska, which Jesse is <laughs> flat and dull. Believe you me, I. Uh, so yeah, so like oh, Glory Road. I remember I've read this book a couple times. This will get me through it. It got me through it. I mean, I noticed things at the time, but at least kept me from drifting off the road. Right. But yeah, but I haven't touched it since. Um, Until now. Let, like, why don't uh, I get you to, to read that intro for me? Okay. Uh, so, so this is in the first first publication of Glory Road from Fantasy and Science Fiction, July 1963. And uh, I don't think it's in any other version. I, I had never seen this before, so this was cool. news to me. Okay. Here we go. Introduction to Robert A. Heinlein's Glory Road. The author of this novel suggests that we say about it only, here's another Heinlein story for them as like such. We respectfully decline. More is in order. Robert A., for Anson Heinlein, is a Missouri-born, 1907, Annapolis-educated, retired Navy officer and engineer, a champion swordsman, a figure skater, an expert <laughs> in rifle and pistol, an accomplished cat midwife, author of 100... 100 magazine stories and 30 books. He lives in Colorado Springs with his wife, Virginia, who is a former waves officer and chemist and also engineer. The street number is appropriately 1776. As we said earlier this year, Robert A. Highlight is, with Isaac Asimov, one of the two most seminal science fiction writers of our time. He contains universes. So instantly apparent, illogical, even almost inescapable, have been many of his themes that other writers have, time after time, sown the fields whose... Sods, he was the first to break. Fields, indeed, which he was the first to perceive. Year after year, decade after decade, he has maintained a position of preeminence. His ability to stimulate, to challenge, has remained unabated. Among Heinlein's attitudes and conjectures, his social and political tones have not been the least evocative of comment. Comment, indeed, is perhaps too mild a word for the reaction to some of them. And he says of this in the new novel, I will outrage all those who are outraged by Sausage Soldier, FNSF, October, November, 1959, will upset all those who are upset by Stranger in a Strange Land, G.P. Putnam's 1961. Therefore, I have great hopes for it. <laughs> it must not be thought, however, it was written solely to stir up the alligators. It is not in the least like either of the other two books named, or for that matter, like any of his other earlier books. Social political points it makes indeed, a plenty, but it's also a good rousing adventure story, and a romance in the ancient as well as in the modern vein. In the days before the lamps went out all over Europe, and subsequently Asia and the other places as well, James Elroy Flecker could hearten back to the golden journey on the road to Samarkand. The road to Samarkand, the roads to other places once of high remont, are alas today often scorned with barricades. The urge to travel has not thereby been diminished in the slightest. Other worlds, other manners, and other roads as well. The Oregon Trail is now clotted with toll gates, speed traps, greasy spoons. The last stagecoach has long since left for Lordsburg. Romance no longer brings up the 915, whatever train it was, Trip King traveled. But the need, the need is still with us. Let us then wrap ourselves in our long cloaks, buckle on our broadswords, cast a warm glance at the lovely woman, arrow knocked, bow in hand, by our side, and thus provisioned, prepare to travel. <laughs> so that itself is full of references. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I wish, I wish, I wish Heinlein was as smart as his characters are supposed to be. Um, 
he is incredibly brilliant, but he's also wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong in so many ways. But a, a lot of it is, it, it's, uh, you can't really, you know, look, uh, there's a line early on where he says, he has Gordon saying, it's not that I haven't had sex with a married man's wife <laughs> under his own roof. It's it's just that I am a, I, I follow the American convention and I don't, I don't uh, uh, tell everybody about it. Or something like that. And I'm like, wait a second, you just told me. And, like, that's not cool, dude. But uh, that's his thing. It's what, I mean, he seemed to be, he wanted to be a wife swapper. I don't know. <laughs> is that wrong? I guess it's not wrong. But why does he have to tell me about it so much that I'm like, wait, I, I wanted this adventure story you're telling me. But it, it it's really baked in there so deeply so that, you know, like my theory about, when this becomes public domain, you can make money by editing it. I think all you could do is sort of sand off the rough edges because it's so... That whole universe of Doral, right, is... It Nivea. Is, yeah, Nivea. Uh, the Doral's in Nivea, right? Yeah. Um, is, I mean, the Doral household is... It's Heinleinian fantasy land. Like, it's the place where he wants to go. Oh, God, yes. And that island, um, which is a real island in France, um, is also, like, Simon said, let's go there, honey. <laughs> Where, you know, they walk around in le minimum, which is like uh, a, a G-string is required when you go in the restaurants. But everywhere else, completely nude is encouraged. Um, okay, uh, I got it. He's not me. But he, he, he seems to think that I guess he doesn't think it. It's just he can't help it. He can't help but talk about it all the time. Uh, and it, I was like, why? Why are you obsessed with this? I don't get it. Uh, I don't know either. I mean, just like, yeah, nudities and taboos. He, he wanted to he wanted to uh, show that what he thought as the irrationality of nudity taboos in a and just keep ha- hammering it again and again and again and again, like oh god! I'd like how how much nudity can you have in a book? Apparently a lot. Well, uh, I, the thing though, right? I mean, I I really like a Princess of Mars, and they're completely nude in there. It's just you don't feel it on you don't feel the penises swinging, you know, on every yeah, yeah. page. Um, it's just sort of mentioned once, and and. And notice John Carter doesn't go around saying, you know, uh, the conventions of American morality are wrong. Um, <laughs> the way we have to do things is to have every woman have as much sex as possible. Uh, <laughs> freely given. Because, uh, and then have the wife say, I'm a dirty tramp. Every three pages. It's like, what the hell's going on in this book? And we lost uh, Misa, who's going to be on the on the podcast. Um she, she she wrote a note saying, uh, let's see if I can dig it up because it was, Uh-oh. it was, uh, oh yeah, okay, says, hi, Jesse, I'm sorry, but I have to step off the glory road. I'm halfway through and I feel so objectified and off put at the thought of, of a spanking. I have to keep putting it down <laughs> <laughs> unless something I'm is about to change drastically. This is very much a male fantasy novel that I can't get into. Part of the problem might be I have a looming deadline here and I can't justify taking time to read a book 
when I should be using it to get over this mountain of work. Please accept my apologies. I should be okay for the next one. So I, I wrote back. I said, uh, no worries. You know, it's a male fantasy novel written by a man who wants to be a woman and be spanked. <laughs> and then I said uh, a couple days later, I just got to the part that threw you off the book. Yeah, Heinlein is so annoying. And then I realized a couple days later, that wasn't the part. It was just yet another scene where I'm like, oh my God, Heinlein, why are you doing this to me? Why? Why do I have to go through this this dialogue? Oh my God. I like the characters. I don't like their speeches is, I guess, really what it comes down to. Speed up. Heinlein, Heinlein speechifying is, uh, yeah. And it, it's, like, it, it's a libertarian fantasy world too. Remember how the, how the, the road you know, there's bandits on the road, and and yet the Doral will won't kill you until you step off his land, and then he's going to, you know, it, 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 there's no need for police and taxes and and you know it, just the subtle digs against taxes and all. Oh the, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He obsessed with oh yeah. If I if I if I won this Irish sweepstakes, Uncle Sam would take all my money, and that's not good. And he could lend it to Poland or give it to Brazil. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I say subtle digs. I mean, they're not subtle because they're yeah. at the beginning of the book. They're at the end of the book, and um, it's ridiculous. It's it, it's it's kind of sad and ridiculous. And and yet he's he's really smart, right? One of the one of the things he says about this silly empress stuff that we sort of can get go along with because I mean the system where you have an emperor or a hereditary king, those kind of silly systems. On the other hand. Um, I really like Queen Elizabeth because she doesn't screw up Canada very much. Doesn't really pay attention. She's the queen. She's on the money. She's theoretically the head of state, and yet we never, you know, have to deal with it, pay for it, or there's no real cost to us. So it works really well, and and that's kind of what he says. Uh, her job is uh, our um, heroine in this book. Her job is to is to basically do nothing most of the time. And I mean, I think that that's a, a good theory and a good standard. However, um, I should point out that uh, in the 1960s, uh, maybe it was in, yeah, in the 70s. I can't, it was either the late 60s or 70s. Heinlein signed up to a document that was published in Galaxy and analog um, and new worlds of SF that said, here's a list of all the science fiction writers who think we got to keep going with the Vietnam War, and here's a list of all the science fiction writers who think we should get out of the Vietnam War. Guess which side Heinlein was on? Oh, he he was pro Vietnam War. Of course he was. And what's the logic? Well, you know, uh, honor of America, our promises to. South Vietnam. That's exactly right. He says, we, the undersigned, believe the United States must remain in Vietnam to fulfill its responsibility to the people of that country. Okay. So, until what time? Right? So, the thing is, is his protagonist here is, somebody said that it was a Korean War. It's not a Korean War. 100% not. It's the Vietnam War. It's early Vietnam War, but it's Vietnam War. It's the, because because uh, the whole the whole thing about oh yeah it's not been declared a war yet I can't get my GI benefits right. oh look I can get my GI benefits he gets goes back like oh I can get my GI benefits now because it's now real world hooray yeah 
But it's it's de- I mean it's definitely the Vietnam War. The way he describes the combat is is much uh, you know it's jungle. It's not Korea. Korea is a lot colder. Yeah, he says specifically Southeast Asia. He's trying to he's trying to get to Singapore to get a boat go west to go to Germany and yeah. It's the Vietnam War. It's so Vietnam he has War. this Vietnam War veteran who comes back from the war uh, is hassled by the the. Uh, administration of of the army and has has some troubles sticks around in europe which is a thing that people did and then eventually comes back to the states and hangs out with hippies where he's spat upon pretty much at the end right he's hanging out with a group of hairy hippies yep the the whole uh canard about about being on bets being spat upon he he gets that in a decade before that myth actually took hold at the end of the war. So I, I found that really interesting. Like, yeah. oh, it, it's like, wow, he, he, he predicted that, which is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he predicted. I mean, I think it was it was it was it, it was definitely there. There are people who are against the war. Right. And the draft. And and I mean, he's against it in a certain sense of the draft at the beginning right and oh he's definitely he's definitely against against the draft but he volunteers trying to get in trying to uh get into the air force and he winds up uh, in the in the as a gi instead which which reminds me of uh starship troopers where our protagonist wants to be on the ship and he winds up being or ship or one of the other good professions and he winds up as a uh, mobile infantry which is Interesting. Yep. I, I I just realized, yeah, there's a parallel there. It's like, nope, you're scooped up. You're going to be a grunt. Yeah. Good for you. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what was going on with Heinlein. You know, he was in the Navy. He was an officer. I don't think he was a Navy. Yeah. I mean, he he got uh, discharged because of health. Right. And there's a we're, we're way off track, but have you ever read the? Uh, the Revenge of I think it's called the Revenge the Revenge of William Proxmire by Larry Niven. I'm I'm pretty sure I have, but it's been a while. It, it, it's 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 a short story. Listeners, oh yes, where, I know this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah where, where, where where time traveler goes back in time and gives Heinlein a uh, shot an of antibiotic shot so he doesn't have to get mustered out of out of the navy so he won't write science fiction so science fiction writers won't bother William Proxmire Myers. Att- and it turns out to go all wrong. The the timeline actually turns out to it to be better for various butterfly reasons. I thought that was an amusing story. I I, I didn't quite finish my um my sad recounting of the beginning and the end of the book because one oh, of yeah. the other things that happens is basically he's a homeless vet, right? He's a homeless vet who wanders around carrying a sword on the streets. Um, and who even questions his own sanity. Um, I'm trying to find that part right at the end uh, in the e-text I sent you. Um, but he, he, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He, he travels all over the states. He goes up to visit his parents. He, 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 for the second time, thinks he's won the lottery. Oh, I got, I got it. I'm gonna read it. What page number is it on? On page 89. All right. Um, a man could stack a lot of saucers in a month and I began to fume instead of dream. Why the hell didn't UFO show up? 
I brought this account up to date from Sheer Nurse. Has Rufo gone back or is he dead? Or was he never born? Am I a psycho discharge? And was in this case I carry with me whenever I go a sword? I'm afraid to look. So I do. And now I'm afraid to ask. I met an old sergeant once, a 30-year man, who was convinced that he owned all the diamond mines in Africa. He spent his evenings keeping books on them. Am I just as happily deluded? Are these francs my monthly disability check? Does anyone ever get two chances? Is the door in the wall always gone when next you look? When do you catch the boat for Brigadoon? Brother, it's like the post office in Brooklyn. You can't get there from here. I'm going to give Rufo two more weeks. And and, and, then, and they, it turns out that Rufo does because but you could totally go with a revision of Glory Road where you take away that last two paragraphs mm-hmm. and end it there. That would be an interesting rewriting of Glory Road, leaving to the reader was it all delusion in the brain? Is that after all or yeah. not? I almost yeah. I'm I'm a lot more depressed uh, on this reading than I was in the, my previous reading because that. I just picture, like, combine it with all the, you know, the sort of weird morality and basically misunderstandings of of what what women want. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I assume. What women want. Yeah. I assume I like women don't task. want what he want. Uh, what what he says they want. Speaking with um, swords. Yeah. No. Uh, look, I, I'm sure somebody out there is is cool with that, but I'm pretty sure the majority aren't going they want to be spanked with their own sword never his sword like what difference does this make um and why uh, yeah, is this dialogue I, 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 happening to me yeah i hung up on that one this time i didn't catch a previous read through it's like what does what yeah why her sword and not his sword what is what does this signify it's all some sort of horrible in-joke metaphor for his wife or something like please don't do that I don't know what he wants from. Why am I being exposed to this? Oh, it's almost like he, he's a really good storyteller, and he rushes into the room and flashes you, and then closes his his uh, his jacket, <laughs> and then you know has a nice conversation. Like, well, I I like the one aspect, but I'm not so good with the flashing. And I so yeah, I'm I'm upset by that, but it's actually. I mean, we did Friday not that long ago, right? And that that one's a hell of a meander. This one has a meander too, but it's m- at least more tightly controlled in a certain sense. It's a, it's an the early ending, book, yeah. He hadn't let things completely get away from him yet. It, it, notice how long it takes for him to get to the end of the book once the battle's over. Oh yeah, he spent yeah. a lot of time sitting around the castle going to parties. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The the stuff in Star's world, frankly, this time bored the crap out of me. Totally. It's like, I mean, I had no, maybe not noticed that before, but it's just I'm like, oh god, is this gonna be over yet? Oh nope, not yet over yet. Nope, still more speechifying. Nope. Yeah, I I mean, I I the the, the Nevian parts. I mean, the the actual adventure we get when you strip all the speeches. I'm no, I know you don't get. I, I mean, there's there's a world I could go. Wander explore. The, I mean that the whole little area with the waterfalls. It's like I could mm-hmm. go there. I could photograph that. I could chill out. Okay, and if I was a hero, I could go face dragons, the Cold War gang, and everything else. And the Dural, well, Dural has weird customs. I would just know to you know handle the customs best I can. But yeah, and the tower, the whole tower thing. 
I, yeah. I liked I liked that because I paid more attention to it. I mean, we get nice sword fighting beats in it. It's a really good sword fighting scene where he describes everything that's happening in real sword fighting terms. You can understand how that's going. And I I mentioned this before uh, because, we, because we haven't even talked about all the references. And you mentioned this on mm-hmm. Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. The first couple, the first couple times I read this, I didn't get who the swordsman that the that the uh, Neverborn was. It was only like on the third try, like, oh, that's Cyrano de Bergerac, of course. The nose. I didn't. Never- I'm, I didn't get it. Yeah, I'm like it's, still it's, like it's, it's totally- he has a big nose. Okay, okay, and he's a good sword fighter, and he's French. Got it. It's, it's, Still don't ring an out new bell. Oh, you, you didn't know Cyrano Bergerac? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I probably knew it at one point and forgot it, but I again didn't get it while I was w- listening to this. Oh no, no. It's. It, it, I mean, it, I mean, I had gotten it some time back, but yeah, because where is it? Where is it? Um, let me find this text where he fights him. I need the book. By the way, I, while you're looking that up, I wanna I wanna point out more of the good structure. So. The files I sent you, I, I took the uh, 22 chapters and I broke them up into two sections. Uh-huh. And the first uh, 11 chapters uh, are the first half of the book, and the 12 to 22 are the second half of the book, right? Um, well, it just so happens, and I think this is probably Heinlein's good writing rather than Heinlein's bad writing, is chapter 11 ends uh, with a kind of fateful scene, uh, another choose-your-own-adventure sort of choice um so he says uh, this is the end of chapter 11 i drew my sword and glanced along it feeling its exquisite balance while noting again the faint ripples left by feather soft hammer blows of some master swordsmith i tossed it and caught it by the forte read the motto star she traced it out dum vivium vivamus while we live let us live yes my love yes she kissed it again with the swords and handed it back. I placed it on the ground. Know your lines, I asked, graved in my heart. I took her hand in mine. Jump high. One, two, three. Chapter 12, right? So that's actually a really interesting... Halfway through the book, they get married, right? Exactly halfway through. And it uh-huh. feels like, you know, he's passing through yet another gate or another doorway. Um and that is called out, as you pointed out, uh, and I pointed out, in looking up the quotes, um, the door in the wall, that end end point in the uh, final chapter, yeah, um, is a story by H.G. Wells. It's fabulous. It's about a basically a man who suffers from intermittent um, mental illness, and eventually is found dead in a. Uh, in a construction site, having gone through a green door that was left unlocked um, at night, um, he had seen this door as a child. He had gone through it and found a wonderful fantasy world, basically, where beautiful elven lady, much older than himself, um, uh, shows him a book of his life and all the choices that he will have. And there's tame animals in there, like tigers and wolves and stuff. And then on the final page of this book she's reading, she stops him before the the page he's reading shows him sitting on her lap reading this book. And he forces the page open. She tries to stop him, but he forces the next page open and he's pop, popped out onto the street and 
can't find that door again, right? And then he goes on throughout his life looking for that door, that doorway to another universe. It's a beautiful, beautiful story mm-hmm. um, that is basically the inspiration for all of these styles of um, other, you know, a princess of Mars is, how does he get there? He wishes that he was there, right? Yeah. He, 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 yeah. Opens himself to the possibilities of being uh, transported to Mars. And uh, he's just a deluded man, right? Is is the one, one takeaway. And the other is, no, no, it's real. Um, and so he's playing in that in that background, and he calls out so many, um, so many stories of this ilk um, in this novel, and, and it's worth reading for that. But it's hard going when you are having to de- deal with. I mean, I, I don't think I ever want to read Stranger in a Strange Land again because that is just endless, endless conferences of lawyers. Talking about morality and yeah. ladies yeah. serving them coffee and rocking around in very pert costume. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I I I I found I found the bit where he fights uh where he where he fights the uh, the eater of souls. So mm-hmm. and the ending it says, "Your logic is sharp and touches my heart." Your name, sir, Oscar of Gordon, a good name. One should never be killed by a stranger. Tell me, Oscar of Gordon, have you ever seen Carcassonne? No. See it. Love a lass. Kill a woman. Write a book. Fly to the moon. I have done all these. He gasped uh-huh. and foam came out of his mouth. I even had a house fall on me. What devastating wit. What price honor when timber taps thy top. Top, tap, top, tap, tonsert. When timber taps thy tonsert, you shaved mine. Those are all references to either books that the real Sinatra Bergerac actually wrote. He wrote a book mm-hmm. where he, about flying to the moon or occur in uh, the play Cyrano de Bergerac. So, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I mean, so the first couple times I went through this, like I didn't get this. Who is this guy? And then when I had uh, when I when I had uh, heard about the books, and it's like, oh, that's who this is. That's that. I mean, because we talked, you talked about on Twitter about how this book is replete with references. We just talked about mm-hmm. the, the door and wall. It's like that's his big reference. I mean. We mentioned that Heinlein's was a big swordsman. So who does Oscar Gordon go up against except one of the greatest swordsmen, a real swordsman of all time? I mean, that people would actually know about. I mean, he could have picked someone more obscure. But so he goes with Cyrano de Bergerac. And that's that. I mean, that's the kind of things I like about this book, that you can avoid the question of morality, the endless speechifying, uh, the, the – uh, the strength, the the thuddingness of the third act. I mean, at least that, this is kind of stuff I'd like it for. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Silverlock, where which is just nothing about the the protagonist running into characters and places from literature again and again and again. Yeah, I, the thing is, is this is actually a much better novel than um, To Your Scattered Bodies Go. No, I said Silverlock, I, not To Your Scattered. Yeah, but I haven't read Silverlock. Yeah, the, the, this style of of you know let's play in with these characters these these archetypes these literary figures mm-hmm. literary beings that both their authors and their um their uh their writing their their creations this is a, a very good sort of redoing of any of those uh especially John Carter Mars stuff right it's very swashbuckly and 
and or uh, Prisoner of Zenda. Right? Prisoner of Zenda, yeah, which we've done on the podcast. Great, which is a great book, right? It's it's it, and has all those uh, questioning the the elements. Um, uh, there are really some great ones that are in here. Do you um uh, so there's the three women, right? The three b- women who want to bed him. The 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 mother, the daughter, and the the second wife or something of uh, the Doral. Yeah. Right. The three and, bears. <laughs> the three bears, I call them, right? And then at one point, he's fighting the horned ghosts, and then he accidentally says the horned goats. And I'm thinking, oh, this could go one of two ways. One is it's a him realizing that he's just getting into a fight with a herd of goats. <laughs> Or it just could be, you know, him being horny or something. Yeah. Probably <laughs> either, either way, it's, 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 uh, I mean, one way it's cool and the other way it's like, oh, kind of sad, uh, but he has it both ways. Right. I, I mean, he does mention earlier on about, um, about, um, fighting, tilting at windmills, uh, right, Don Quixote right. style. So that goes back Absolutely. to the ending again. It's like, it's just all madness. Or, yes. or 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 this all real, all real, um, which kind of reminds me of Neverwhere. Think about Never, oh. Never. I mean, Neverwhere is a. I fan- think that's probably how we got here. I think that's how maybe how we got here because Neverwhere is a fantasy about going into another world, and is it real? Is he just imagining all this? Is he going through mental illness, and the the book tries to keep keep you uh, in suspense as to whether or not that's actually what. Well, actually, what is happening? Whether this is actually objective reality, or he's just had a psychotic break and he's wandering the streets of London, homeless and crazy, is yeah, is, is Oscar uh, Gordon Neil wandering? Gaiman's... Yeah, is Oscar Gordon wandering around, homeless and crazy? Uh, yes, he's not. I mean, no, he's not because the last two paragraphs make so. But take away those two paragraphs from the end of this novel, and you can make the argument that yes, he he's imagining all this because. It's what he wanted. I'm going to read this section. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wasn't about to hold up in a monastery. I still wanted. What did I want? I wanted the rock's egg. I wanted the harem loaded with lovely odalesques less than the dust beneath my chariot wheels, the rust that never stained my sword. I wanted raw red golden nuggets the size of your fist and feed that lousy chain gum jumper to the huskies. I wanted to get feeling brisk and go out and break some lances, then pick a likely wench from my droit du seigneur. I wanted to stand up to the baron and dare him to touch my wench. I wanted to hear the purple water chuckling against the skin of the Nancy Lee in the cool of the morning watch and not another sound, nor any movement save the slow tilting of the wings of the albatross that had been pacing us the last thousand miles. I wanted the hurling mood moons of Barsoom. I wanted stores end in Point Zoom and homes shake me awake to tell me the game's afoot. I wanted to float down the Mississippi on a raft and elude a mob in the company with the Duke of Bilgewater and the Lost Dolphin. I wanted Prester John, an Excalibur held by a new might arm out of the Silent Lake. I wanted to sail with Ulysses with Charles of Samothrace and eat the lotus in the land that seemed always afternoon. I wanted the feeling of romance and the sense of wonder I had known as a kid. I wanted the world to be what they had promised me it was going to be instead of the tawdry, loudly fouled up mess it is. That last sentence is almost like it says like Highline's really showing his colors. He said, this is what I wa- the world sucks and I want something different. Yeah. Which I guess another yeah. big thing in this book with all the nudity and all the weird things he goes and visits. It, it's it's a fantasy world for him. It's a fantasy world for Highline. I mean, if if Highline gets to go to a 
to a heaven of his own making. It's probably a ranch like the Doral's. He he is the Doral. <laughs> Clearly, he he. Uh, that's the thing is, you know, when I read the when I read Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, I don't get the sense that Neil Gaiman is obsessively putting himself into each of the characters in the, as much as he's creating the characters and he i mean he does have sort of a s- set of kinds of characters that he he likes to use there's you know the um the pixie girl you know the beautiful pixie girl uh there's the sort of the the blank neil gaiman character you know who <laughs> It experiences it and then there's the weird uh dude who um has a funny haircut you know the marquis de carabas <laughs> yeah the yes. marquis de carabas right he's, he's got a sort yeah. of set right but i don't feel like he he i mean the the term i always think of the way heinlein when he goes wrong it's it's mass masturbatory it's very not like we shouldn't be watching this this is not good um because when he spends so much time with his his female characters giving their theories as to what is right and proper and then the male character disputes this like the 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 kind of um conflicts that he has them have are just i've never heard anybody have these kinds of conflicts in my whole life the only people who have these kinds of conflicts are Heinlein's characters with each other. And there's a kind of horror to it. Um, but it it is a good book, despite all that. The, the fact that he sets us up with this character who wants to have not basically been abused by his government. Um, and killing little brown brother, right? Mm-hmm. Um uh, who wants to have, you know, the kinds of adventures he read about as a kid, um, and then he gets them, but only in his deluded mind. I, I, I think the ending is much sadder, because I think he's, again, deluded. Um, and because he, he's good at undercutting it throughout, um, I, I if you take this work on its own, I, I come to the conclusion, yeah, he's totally deluded. Now, of course... The way Heinlein works is he has to connect everything up, right? Everything's in the Heinlein universe. Oh, yeah, the Heinlein Cinematic Universe. Oh, my God. The Heinlein Cinematic Universe should not exist. It is. Uh, Well, well, it's his own fault. He started doing that with Number of the Beast. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, because, because I I mean, you're going to laugh, Jesse. Your eyes are going to boggle because Number of the Beast was like the second Heinlein book I read. So I was really confused. Like, who are all these people? What are all these things? What is this even? That one's never going to get made into a movie ever. Okay. Well, not unless you start a Highlight Cinematic Music Universe set of movies. Yeah, but if you did, if you did and you started with that one, that would be the end of it, right? Yeah, that would be if the If you eventually. start with any other kind of story, any other kind of Heinlein, it'll, it'll sell it, and people will watch it. But that'll be the final nail in the coffin if they ever do it because – the problem is, is it's he thinks it's cool, but me, I don't care about how many times uh, Man, Manny Gordon shows or uh, Manuel Garcia, whatever his name is from uh, uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, shows up in other books. I love the character in that book, but I take them each individually on their own. 
what's kind of crazy about this book is it is actually theoretically not a fantasy novel, which it totally should be. Um, it should be a fantasy novel in the way, same way that Prisoner of Zenda is or uh, Princess of Mars is. And it turns out now it's all expl- all the magic that happens is explainable by, you know, you don't have the math yet, son. <laughs> oh, oh. And so when we get, you know, the the arrows being, you know, affected by gravity, and I, I, I think the book works best in the scenes, like, when we, I, I totally didn't remember it, but when we get that first scene with the uh, the giant troll. With Igly! Yes, Igly's Igly. a great scene. Igly, right, it's a great scene. It's a, It works really well. I didn't, you know, he comes up with this plan, we're going to drown him, Right. Turns out that's not how the plan ends ends up, and the solution, um, you know, when he ends up with a pair of greasy hands, <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. This is this is Heinlein operating at 100% peak Heinlein efficiency. It's just wonderful, and and because of that, I I'm sure in 10 years or so I'll be looking back fondly on this book. And saying, oh my God, you know, he's such a, it's a, such a great opening with all the letters, uh, all the ads in the newspapers that are specifically tailored to Are him. you a coward? This is not for you. Uh, that's right. It's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. So, it, I mean, th- I'm th- th- sure. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a sense that they've been, I mean, we get that in the, uh, in the plotty third section that he's been being manipulated for a better part of a decade by star and at least. Yeah. And, and, and must, she must've been manipulating lots of other people because who knows if he'd actually come through. So this is, this is, I mean, gives the kind of scope of what her power and project is, is kind of even larger. It's like how many, and that answers don't answer the question. How many are there near, how many near Oscar Gordon's are there wandering the earth at this point? It's a good question. The thing is, is she can manipulate time and space, apparently. And, uh, you know, w- the way, um, what's the, what's the uh, gnome? What's his name? Rufo. Rufo. So Rufo is a, is a, a fun character. And, and he's kind of a, what's nice about him is, especially as voiced by Bronson Pinchot, he doesn't come across as the, the older uh, science fiction Heinlein old man who knows everything. Oh no, he's definitely not uh, that. And speechifies, right? He's he's much more uh, of a sidekick in a certain sense than normal for a Heinleinian. And a, fun, a funny tripod. one. Rufo, do you know what what a uh, water pole is? I invented it. Like yeah, yeah he invented everything. <laughs> and he was he was giving Eisenhower advice on D Day, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Don't trust um, anything Rufo says, and then don't trust half of that either. Well, yeah. But uh, what what's nice about that that tripod is that Rufo doesn't come across like that Heinleinian philosopher old man. Um, and, but there's a striking scene when, as soon as they get the egg, right, and he's diluted, he's go back. He, he it, we almost have that. It's the exact scene in Neverwhere, right? In fact, it. It almost feels like the structure is identical now that I think about it. Remember in Neverwhere when he's tested uh, at Blackfire Station, yeah, at Blackfire Station, um, the they say, you know, here's the test. You're you're just a crazy homeless man. Um, he ha- our hero Gordon has the same thing happen, right? He 
he he's having a nightmare where all sorts of terrible things have happened to him and he's just deluded and he's in basically in a psycho ward which i think is uh backed up by a lot of the text right that he's basically i mean look at his clothing at the beginning of the book it, it's not mentioned until later in the book but i drew a, i drew a drawing he's wearing later hose and, and an aloha shirt and nothing else <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice combo um <laughs> walking walking around uh france looking like that um talk about, okay talk about a big ugly, scar on your face yeah talk about ugly americans i mean he's having fun with it but it's also it's also uh, it feels a lot sadder with all the homeless vets going you know going on right now and th- these are all the ones that heinlein would have chosen right he's saying you know Screw the draft. The draft is a bad idea. Volunteer army. That's much better. Uh, yeah, he got that now, bud. How do you like it? How, how come he's not? He's he's so wise when it comes to telling you know how we're not going to have democracy anymore. Democracy is foolish. Yeah. Right. Yep. It's basically his whole theory. Oh yeah, yeah. There, um, there's a whole speech that is like, oh, how are you doing with the grand experiment? And it's like, oh, we got rid of that. And he thinks he means uh, prohibition. It's like, oh, you got rid of democracy. What do you have a king now? It's like, yeah. 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 And then, uh, I mean, I, I think he's right in that you, one of the best things the government can do is basically not screw around with things. And uh, that's cool um, because grand experiments um, can be grand failures, you know, so maybe try your experiments small and let them succeed. And then th- that's, that might make sense. But it also applies to foreign policy. Right. And Heinlein doesn't apply that. He's, he's in favor of the Vietnam War. He wants it to continue. Why? Well, you know, national we, order. Made our commi- yeah. we made our commitments, right? Yeah, nat- or, uh, national glory right? in a certain sense. That's the thing is, is honor and glory are, are basically ways of backing up mistakes. It's like we screwed up. So we have, yeah, it, 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 it's, yeah it's the old uh, problem of... Uh, Keep it, keep you throwing, break it. You bought it. Yeah. You keep breaking it. Come on. Oh yeah, throwing good money after bad. Yeah. Yeah, or more lives after after you know. Right. Yeah. Lives. Okay, okay. Let's and that's what kept them in the war that long, right? Is uh, the uh, Vietnam War is now a not no longer the longest war in American history. No, it's uh, Afghanistan. Got, God help us. You've got Afghanistan and uh, and also um, the Iraq War is is going to be pretty close. I I well, technically up. not. In there, technically, as a war, technically, although we have people there, but yeah, dude, Vietnam was technically not. Yeah, a I know, war but, too. but I know, I, I know, it's the, the Americans were in Vietnam long before most people think. Oh, uh, well, well this, the this, this, this novel proves us, proves it. it. It absolutely does, and that's one of the reasons people are saying, you know, it's it can't be the Vietnam War; it must be the Korean War. It's it, it, they took over the French uh, fuck up there, and they just kept going with it. Well, they. Um, so I, it, it seems to me like that if we're looking at this book as a book of wisdom, we're not going to find much. Um, but it is an adventure and he's so good when he's good. And so terrible yeah. when he's terrible. Oh, I want to, I want to go in there and edit it and make it. No, this is out. We're not doing any of this. We're ending this scene. I keep the keep the you know questioning uh, 
of reality, I think that's good. But all the speechifying about morality and like I don't, he must be trying to work it out in his own head because it it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know anyone else who's obsessed with it like he is. It comes up book after book after book. Yeah, I, I and yet I, I, he he loves his country so much, but he 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 wants it to be a different kind of place and not a place I think is better. He wants the way things were, which is yeah. He he not only wants to say stop, he wants to turn things back. And I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure that's true. I think he was very progressive, but in a very strange. I mean, but only in certain in ways. strange ways. Yeah. In, in I mean, the thing is, is people. You can criticize Heinlein for all sorts of things. He's not racist. He's 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 more like he's got a mirror too much. He's looking at a mirror too much. But he he's not racist. He's not trying to bring back uh, uh, you know segregation or anything like that. He's very progressive in some respects. It's because and I guess a lot of people look at this as a libertarian book um, because of the stuff that's going on in it, but. I don't know. He, he's a very frustrating. Yeah, yeah that first frustrating is a good way of putting listening to this. I mean, I didn't have the excuse of driving endlessly across planes. And so it's like, okay, more of this. Oh, God, I'm, we're still in the third part. Oh, God, we're still in the third part. Oh, God. Um, we we're speechifying. Oh, it's making good sword. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Where's the – I mean, because once the adventure is over, yeah. I, 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 I didn't tune out of the book because I did listen to it and tried to pay attention to things and started, I, I but, didn't I didn't ever lose track of what's going on. He's very good at yeah at but sentence by sentence re but in writing. But so. as far as interest, once he defeats Cerno de Bergerac and gets out of there, yeah I mean the no, the novel's interest kinda goes flags for me. I mean, I didn't notice it on my last reread in 2013. I did notice it this time. Like, yeah. How about the fact that he goes back to the Doral right after he's he's been there? That was a mistake. No, no, right? no, no. He he wants to make he wants to make right. I mean, it could have killed him. It might have killed the killed them all. And I'm talking Heinlein. Uh, this is a mistake. Like, he, he basically he he sets up. We're visiting this this barony or whatever it is. Um, they spend the night in the, in the guest as guests and heroes. I mean, there's a lot of praising of how handsome our hero is. I mean, that's continuous basically. But when when they have the speechifying, I think that's really great. When he's he's reciting uh, all the different poems he's stealing yep, yep, from tons, Edgar Allan Poe and yep, tons of tons tons of more references. I mean, Casey at the bat and all that. Right, great. Uh, that's wonderful stuff. It's it's um it's like Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court kind of great, right? But then because of the screw up in in the morning there she says you can have the cold shoulder i i'm not going to touch it his wife's offended for him, for him i guess and then they go on this speech and rufo does one of his uh you don't know what you're doing boss or whatever things that's going on and then they go back there and yeah. make things right right that why why that, why oh, stop, stop stop i'm gonna stop you right there why because 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 it goes back to what I said earlier in this podcast. The the whole thing with the Doral is the core and why this book exists. I mean, right. I mean, the whole secret. You're right. 
So he has to he has to fix that mistake, even if it even if it there's a real chance that he could have been killed by it. So that's why he has to go back rather. Than so he has to go sleep with three women he didn't want to sleep with because it would be against his morality. He has to just get used to the fact that his wife wants to wife swap or he wants to he, wife swap. He, his wife he, needs to get used to the fact more, that he wants to wife swap. More cha- more like, char- okay, fine. More charitably, he has to get used to the fact that local customs are different and not the rules of not the rules of the universe and what what is what is necessary in one world will get you killed in another. That's that's the so message wherever it's stuck. Heinlein's characters wander, they end up uh, with 14 wives and three husbands and and uh, and the girls want to be spanked and some of them that he's having sex with are actually his granddaughter or what like dude I, I understand that <laughs> that that he structured it that way because that's what he's done but like if, if someone else was writing this book that wouldn't have worked out that way I I, I, I think if you wrote it today if uh, if you had a an author write it today. I suspect that there would probably be, um, I, um, there probably would be um, same-sex relations in there as well. Because why not? Because I, I, I mean, he touches on that and very, that, very briefly. You know, he, I know, but he likes a little lesbianism, but he's not a fan of. Um, no, notice that no, they don't offer him young men, right? Right. Um, and yeah, which yeah, he gets offended totally by that. Do. Yeah. It told, That's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a more modern telling of this would have it probably given given the Doral's very relaxed attitude towards sexuality. I think a modern rewriting of this would have men and women offered to him. I mean, so that's just, that's that's just a thing that Heinlein couldn't really get get a, get his mind around. I know towards the very end he started kind of moving very amorphously towards understanding that in his last, last books when he, when he started having the Heinlein cinematic universe, but here, yeah, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but it's, I mean, you laugh because I remember there's one book where they keep reintroducing star and every time they do her, she has more universes under her belt. Oh, now right. she's the 90, the 48. Oh no, 96. Like what the heck? It's like a running joke at that point. And it, yeah, so, but it's not a very funny joke, is the problem. Yeah, no. I mean, I I, I like the number of the beast when I read it the first time, uh, because they've got a, a, tra- a ship that can go from planet to I don't know universe, universe, to universe. universe yeah, it's cool. But uh, what I was annoyed by, and I was like, who the hell are all these other people I'm supposed to recognize? That it's like, <laughs> I didn't recognize them. I right? I, because, I I. I don't want us to do it on the podcast because I think no. I would bounce off of it harder than adamantium steel. It's like, <laughs> oh no, 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 Heinlein, you didn't. I think. Yeah. I think earlier Heinlein has problems, as we see here, but is more readable. I think probably nothing past "I will fear no evil" is ever reading anything past that is probably the safest thing for me. You know, when we talk about Philip K. Dick stuff, we can see his life in uh, in his works. You know, the bad, the questionable morality, the uh, number of times his girlfriend is mad at him or his wife is, uh, he thinks his wife is cheating on him or whatever, you know, we see reflected in, in his work. We can see it in his life uh, as well. Uh, one of the things that shows up in, in this fant- quote-unquote fantasy novel, 
I don't know if it's. I don't know how to classify. Well, it's, I mean, it's certainly got it's got a dragon and a, a bows and swords on the cover. Right, so but I just said all signs that you don't know about. So right. So w- one of the things that shows up in here is uh, the lady's got her eggs uh, in a bottle, right, um, in a frozen bottle, so that she can decant them and have more. When she had ninety kids so far, or something like that, mm-hmm. more than fifty children. One of them being Rufo's great grandchild or something like that. It's kind of uh, whack, wacky sort of stuff going on. Um, Heinlein never had kids. I believe we know that he really wanted children. Um, I think he was one of the first guys going to hang out at fertility clinics all the time because it just comes up in every book, right? Even if you go back to. Um, to uh, Podcane of Mars. That's how it works, right? The main character there, she is actually technically younger than her brother, who was conceived earlier, right? right. But she's raised right. at, uh, raised as a... Um, uh, she's decanted earlier or something like that. And uh, he he's very interested in this subject um, because I guess it, it really happened to him. Right, his wife and he are trying to get fertility treatments in a time when that was yeah, you know, and, just, and he and he, yeah, he couldn't manage it. It's, it's I think it's something that now we're now we're psychoanalyzing Heinlein. Um, maybe it's something that really ate at him. I don't think it's even psycho. Uh, what well, it, it, it's definitely people write about what they're interested in, right? And they know about. Um, and the number of times he writes about it is insane, right? It's not. It's in basically every novel that has uh, any science fiction in it, and and it, we even get it here. Um, it, it shows up a lot more frequently in the later stuff. You know, the I'm gonna have your baby. What kind of baby are we gonna have? Well, I'm sterile. Does that make me? Does that make me a minx? Oh, does that make me a bitch? Like what? <laughs> yes, Stop like, talking about this. Yes, I'm. Oh, I, I, you're a bitch. Like what the hell? <laughs> what the hell is going on? Why is he doing this to me? I'm, I'm a, why are we doing this to the listener of this podcast? <laughs> um, oh my! I, I, I think they, I think they uh, knew what they were signing up for. Oh my! <sighs> but but and yet people are still. Ta- I mean, even beyond us, people are still talking about, it and they're still trying to wrap their. I mean, even oh God, is it? Almost 30 years after he's dead, he's, 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 people are still kind of reacting to what he wrote and how he wrote it and what he was thinking. I saw a tweet. Um, I think it was Mythgard Academy. Yeah. Um, or uh, there's another one, the Tolkien one. Uh, maybe Tolkien and Mythgard are the same thing. Anyways, there's a couple of you know online uh, fun education uh, I want to say podcasts. And somebody had said, uh, how about a Tolkien one? <laughs> oh, no, 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 not a Tolkien one. How about a Heinlein one? And I'm like, oh, no. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> because he's so good and he's fun to read. And I, I would love to see more people reading his stuff because I think they will like it. But I think it's almost... You have to just ignore all the stuff that is 
so hard. I think it really hurts people's brains to think that Heinlein knows what he's talking about in terms of libertarianism because it it doesn't work. What he's talking about is, ins- I mean, ultimately. The armed society is a polite society, but. Or, or just, yeah, but how about just like, yes, the uh, birth control pill is a good thing. It's a technology, which is useful. But all of his universes have, women must be putting out all the time. Um, and that's natural. Anything else is unnatural. And yours is the weird universe, he says to us. Um, okay. That's a nice theory. What do you got to back it up, Mr. Heinlein? Well, see, I wrote this novel. It's like, no. There's nothing, There's something weird going on there. He, he, for such a brilliant guy, he's... he's, But he's not 100% wrong. The, there are things that he talks about that are related to this that are okay, but he, the way he speechifies it and the way he has these characters get into these ridiculous false conflict conversations uh, it's just almost unbearable I, I guess I've said that before I'm going to stop talking about it no no but anything we uh, have anything we haven't talked about on this book um well, we talked we talked about this the, the books uh, there's there's stuff to like in it but yeah I'm not sure I mean, it might take me ten years of forgetting about this podcast if you want to reread the Heinlein. Like, I I remember Glory wrote that was fun. Let me re- listen to it again. I, I'm I'm thinking about Tunnel in the Sky. Boy, that's a great book. <laughs> I'm I'm totally forgetting about all the stuff in it I don't like. I, I, I'm sure that it, it exists. It it it's a juvenile, so it shouldn't be as much. That but I'm already rationalizing myself into getting to re- reread another Heinlein novel. I I, I see I, how this works. Yeah, I, I I think that there's a point there that we can end on. For you and me, people who read Heinlein since we were young. We come back to rereads of Heinlein and we find stuff we like, stuff we remember, the stuff we, the good stuff that we like, and then go like, oh my God, what is all this other stuff? But for people who have not, who didn't read him, natively is not the right adjective here, but I don't know what that word is, who did not read him when they're young. When they're young. I, they I know, but when they're, they're when, when they're young and try to read him thereafter, I think. What Heinlein does just throws lots of those readers, if not the majority of those readers, off. And maybe it's possible that Heinlein doesn't have so much to say for readers new to science fiction who haven't encountered him before as he once did. Because the problematic and stupid and clunky and horrible stuff just overwhelms the virtues The like... So, I mean, I can't think of anybody who hasn't read Heinlein that would hand a Heinlein novel to anymore. Not even Glory Road. Not even Glory Road. It's like, yeah. It, it is kind of scary how he's going to be. I mean, he's in decline right now, right? It's it used to be you could go into the bookstore and you would see stacks of Heinleins, right? Well, that, but, yeah, but, that, but that's just true bookstores in general. I mean, the Coot Street podcast mentioned this i was just listening to that yesterday as i was driving down to hastings that bookstores in general don't carry older stuff in general anymore right and 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 that's the pine lines just stay but i remember say 1990 1990s pine lines passed away but yep. 
the books are the science fiction section of the bookstores are full of this stuff now. No, and they're all new books. They're all new printings, right? Yeah. So then, but now, no, it's not being reprinted. I mean, there's stuff in ebook, but yeah, people are not having the opportunity to discover Heinlein, and maybe given what we're finding in it, even books I thought were beloved, High Glory Road, maybe that's for the best. Um, there's some, but there's yeah. somebody. And I'm going to kill myself because I can't remember who. I want to say it's Maureen Speller, but I don't think it is. I I know somebody in my feed, someone in my circles, who is studying Heinlein now. I can't remember who it is. And it's like, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that, what 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 she finds. I know it's a her. I, I, Maureen, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry if it is you and I'm misattributing you. Someone's slowly starting to study Heinlein, but... I'm not sure that's such a valuable thing, except for scholars of the field. I mean, I'm talking about the people who go back and do those, like those University of Illinois Press books, where they study an author in detail. Those are those are wonderful books, by the way. They they have a few of them out now. Except for that, the average genre reader, I don't think needs to read Heinlein or particularly should read Heinlein with because. The, what about what about the juveniles? Because I I, I wanna I wanna be able to hand a juvenile to a young person and say i think you might like this I, I don't read so much ya i mean i only read a little bit of YA. i think there's better ya currently being written that you could hand it to instead in what in what sense better so I, what's up what's up what's what's better um less problematic more contemporary <laughs> okay written, well written, we got to deal with what you mean by problematic so uh, one of the things about the ya's that that heinlein wrote and they weren't called ya's he basically invented the ya genre in a certain sense um that those juvenile novels that he wrote are almost completely free of the sex stuff there's there's uh, a lot of great protagonist storytelling with capital s capital f science fiction right this is it, it, when when that when you read that introduction, that is not. I mean, I think Asimov has a lot less readable stuff um, in his vast majority of science fiction um, than does Heinlein, and that is just after having read this book. Asimov's fiction is not as good as Heinlein's, at least in the YA department. Uh, and obviously, we're comparing apples, apples and oranges here because he didn't write uh, uh, Asimov didn't write a lot of YA, but those original books, those original YA novels, starting with Rocket Ship Galileo, um, are full of the science fiction mindset, and that's why when we've got this. This book that's supposedly a fantasy adventure, it's not even really. It's it's still, he's trying to rationalize it because he, he really is a science fiction guy. He's not a fantasy guy at all. He is, it's not like he can switch back and forth. He really is just playing a game of science fiction here. And yeah, he he's playing very loose, but he's Mr. Science Fiction in a way that even Wells isn't. Wells could do fantasy Wells could do allegory. Heinlein's not doing allegory ever. Or if he is, I've never seen it. It's all... He is hard SF in a certain sense. It's not hard like like the math as much as it's hard like, here's how rocket ships work, boys. Here's 
how you know the moon's out there and i'm going to do this experiment on the moon and and we're going to set up a culture and a system i i i mean if if people don't read moon is a harsh mistress even though it's got some weird stuff going on in it i think that the world is a worse place and that's not even a ya right right i think the world is a much worse place and i can't say you know you're saying there's better stuff now Tell me something that stands up like uh, Rocket Ship Galileo, and I'd be happy to read it. Because I can't remember. I, I, I don't. I tried a lot of other stuff, and Heinlein is great. I've read all his stuff. It's amazing. I, Tell me. I, 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 I can think much more fantasy YA than science. Actually, science fiction YA. I mean, I mean, again, I am not the person to be on this podcast to talk about what the hottest of YA fiction because I don't read a lot of it. I mean, I, what, are you, what, what are you going to hand to a kid who, I mean, uh, to me, what makes somebody worth talking to is that they've read a lot of books because if you haven't read a lot of books, I don't know what we can talk about because you don't know anything. I mean, a lot of science, I mean, a lot of science fiction that you do have, that's science fiction. YA is mostly uh, like stuff. I mean, the Hunger Games sort of uh, approach to science fiction, which is yeah, the, post-apocalyptic uh, or post uh, or dystopic. I read the first one of that; it, it was okay, but Tunnel in the Sky is better, and and uh, it's it's the same premise, right? Basically, survival, and it's got it, it doesn't demand sixteen sequels. One of the I don't think Heinlein ever wrote a sequel, did he? Um, the Heinlein, the Heinlein Cinematic Universe, I guess that that when things start having so guests, everything's connected, but that but, he, but, he right, because the Cat Who Walks Walls is a sequel to uh, Number of the Beast, and then Selby on the Sun says a sequel to that. So I mean, yeah, and, I and guess. Friday but, itself is a sequel to a story that he wrote in the fifties. So he did well, not a sequel. Come on, I, be be fair. You don't have – nobody even knows they're connected, right? Heinlein I, I knew it was connected because like, oh, I know who this character is. Now you just – I mean when, when she goes to the moon and sees that uh, – That doesn't make it a sequel though. He's just recycling characters and – and uh, you, you. I mean I was on that show, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know you're on that uh, show. You run this show. <laughs> but the, the thing is, is I, I think Heinlein has something really special. That no one else. I mean, when I was a kid and I read his stuff, I was, uh, and as I blew through his uh, his uh, early materials, his YAs, his juveniles, and up to Starship Troopers, and then start hitting the Stranger in a Strange Land. I, I was like, I, I, maybe I'm growing out of this. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, fear no evil. Okay, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, well, maybe there's other books out there for me, right? Um, so, but the thing is, is the reason I I am so interested in Heinlein is because I think that he really knows how to convey a certain 1950s um, mindset of science is super important. Science and understand like all his characters are engineers really not scientists right they they love to the break out the slide rule that even is mentioned in here right yep. he's going to break out the slide rule our character though a vet is really an engineering student right and the importance of you know being able to the popular mechanics style of 
let's take this apart and put it back together, we can do it, is something that we are increasingly, I think, getting away from uh, with, you know, your phone being glued together so that it's not user repairable. Mm -hmm. That is a universe that Heinlein wouldn't recognize. I don't think he ever recognized it because he didn't live long enough to see it. But it's an important one, and I think it 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 really it helps you as a person. It helped me as a person in a time when a lot of people were talking about you know the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons warping people's minds. Here was a guy who, although had some weird ideas, showed that you know let's look at these things logically. Let's not just assume that because the government uh, is going in a certain direction that that's a good idea. He was critical of in all sorts of areas in a way that I don't see a lot of other... I've read a few YA books, including uh, ones that sort of are tributes to Heinlein, and they don't do the same job. It, uh, there's something about him and his, his mindset that really... Uh, it's why he is the figure he is, I think. I don't know. I'm I'm Maybe. turning this into Maybe. a I love Heinlein show after saying I hate Heinlein, but, but, but he, uh, really he is Im- super important, Paul. And and to say he's somehow irrelevant hurts me. It I'm, I'm me. not saying it irrelevant, but I'm not saying necessary for the average science fiction reader. As far as a genre figure, and for those who want to do a deep dive into genre history and see where things came from, yes, but. But I, I didn't start I, – I didn't read them when they came out. I read them as a kid, w- well after they were published, 30 years, 40 years after they were published, right? Yeah, but that was that was a different time. As did I, Jesse. I mean I mean, my, my first timeline novel, which I don't remember reading it well. I read, read it years later. You're going to laugh your ass off. But, was, but you didn't say this is I'm doing genre history. You just said I'm reading a book. Right, right. But because – because I was reading stuff that was in my brother's collection, basically. Yeah, I was reading stuff in my uncle's collection and buying my own stuff once I. But I, I don't think that's how people consume books anymore, get books anymore. They that their their friends find books, their friends tell them about that. I'm not so sure that 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 cultural transmission down generations is so much of a thing as it's it's, it's a it's a peer generation rather than a top-down generation as far as learning about books and so and that's making me even sadder but and then that's that's why things like things go viral like say the hunger games because you know a, a person a finds that's just, pop, that's just popular well, that's well, not going well, viral right that's that, that, that was a good old-fashioned marketing campaign harry potter did the same thing right but, it's it's but, we've but got a people, product that's good but spoke, let's sell it but spoke to people i mean harry potter while we've gone way off the rails, listeners, Harry Potter started off because things because it did go not because it was marketed, because it did go viral. Some kids found it, they liked it, they told others about it. It went, it exploded in popularity. It people started getting over here on the U.S. in the U.S. and then finally they had to come up with the U.S. edition because it was so popular and people were trying to get it any way they could. That what that Harry Potter is the epitome and possibly the er example of peer generation popularity of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and, I, and under I, that model, I mean, I mean, what kid's going to pick up, no offense, is going to pick up Starman Jones or Tunnel in the Sky and start 
a Heinlein boomlet. I don't see it happening. And, and not so much. I mean, we're just. Oh, no, no I, I agree. It's not going to happen. But uh, I want to point out that there was no Heinlein boomlet when I was reading them either. No. Um, the, true. The, these are books coming well after, or 30 years after they're published. Um, I'm being, I'm reading a book. That's not, that's not marketing. And the thing is, is I was, I was selling that Harry Potter book at the time, right? I was selling them hand over fist because we had editions in Canada that were properly titled and we could sell them into the U S on online marketing. Like, damn, we made a lot of money selling those books. So I know exactly what's going on with, with Harry Potter. It is, it is, uh, definitely a, um, bottom up in some sense because the book is actually good but when you go to the bookstore now you could probably still find a copy of the latest harry potter oh sir um, oh certainly the, the harry potter but will you in will you 30 years after it that's a good question out? i don't know and will you still find kids hanging out um discover talking about it and more importantly they're completely different kinds of things because harry potter ultimately is nothing like Heinlein. Heinlein is about science, something real. I, I know his adventures are completely unrealistic in many respects, but within the the setup for you know, if it isn't a generation starship, you know, it's somehow they get from planet to planet. However, it works. You know, gateways, tunnels in the sky. However, it works. There's something going on, you know, like when he we spend time on Mars in, in a Heinlein book, um, we're getting kind of as good of a science understanding of what Mars would be like as he had it then. And he's interested in that. And I don't see anybody else who's writing anything like that. Well, um, that, that, that's true. Not only YA science fiction, that's the science fiction in general has had. I mean, I, I, I mean, the expanse. Uh, the expanse novels of James S. A. Corey come to mind as a counterexample until they uh, discover uh, spoiler something in uh, books in book three. But yeah, the first couple of novels, <laughs> I'm, I'm, because I know I haven't read them yet. So the first, I'm not going to read them. You should. You would like them. Uh, not, you would, them. I don't read serials, and uh, oh, I, I know I, you, you hate series, but yeah, but but I mean, I mean, I mean that. Because I, because I even saw a comment from Marco Clues. He's a he's a uh, science fiction writer who was born and raised in Germany and came, then came to the U.S. I actually uh, met him at Worldcon and I did a podcast with him. And he mentions that he has anti gravity in his spaceships, and now he wishes he hadn't done that. And in his next series, he's not going to have that. He's going to go for more realistic. So there's stuff out there. It's just hard, and I mean that, that whole. Soul system science fiction is not as big of a thing as it could be, and I mean, I mean, there is stuff out there. Um, well, I know you don't like series, but again, um, Ian McDonald's Luna New Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a trilogy of three books, but I mean, it really feels like okay if we built the lunar civilization, well, lunar cities, and tried to have lun- and lunar corporations screwing each other over. What would it really be like? What would the technology be like? How would people act and think on the moon? He gets it right. It's really, it's the really good. It's a, it's it's just three books and you're done, Jesse. 
You'd like them. You'd like <laughs> no, them. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Paul, you, you said three books. That That's more. That's two more than I need. Uh, uh, like, uh, here's the thing. Is even Artemis, right, which is a, a new book oh, by Andy the guy Ware. who – Yeah. Right, by the guy who wrote The, Mar, uh, uh, the Martian, right? Um, I don't think I need to read that. And one of the reasons I don't – I've read heard the Martian? Luke's, Luke's, Luke Burge's review is because um, I, I know what it's kind of about and um, – more importantly, I, I've read the definitive Moon book. There, it's Moon is a Harsh Mistress. There, that is the book. If you want to understand what life on the moon's like and the the e- economics that you know would happen, he he uh, did it. That, it's one that, and that, done. That, that, and even he wrote a short story um, that's uh, set on the moon. That you know, it's just a little scene. It's about digging those tunnels, and. Uh, it's a gentleman be seated. Yeah, hey, I remember this, this story. It's a, it's, it's a great story. Yeah, it's it's, it's in uh, the past through tomorrow. Yeah, right. It's a great story, and the whole point of of that kind of fiction is let's explore this and see what uh, you know is consequent of it. And once you get that, once uh, the way I read science fiction, it's for the idea. I know, right? And so uh, I don't need a sequel ever. <laughs> but, but we're in a we're in a society where one and dones are rare. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, that's terrible. I'm saying that that's wrong. I, I, uh, uh, and Heinlein was the one who taught me that it, it, because it's not always he optimal. was one and dunning. It, 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 it's not always optimal because you know there's only so many books you can read, and do I want to get invested Indeed. in a series? And I'd like to read other stuff. And thank the answer you. is no. Yes, you got it. But yes, <laughs> Heinlein taught much, but. And, I mean, maybe you can see the value in reading a bunch of Heinlein. But okay, I, I had a quote from uh, last year. There is a historical perspective and value in these works. I'm talking about Heinlein. For readers who already have their feet in the genre wave pole, handing people who have never tried SF, one of Eisenhower's early books, or classic Heinlein is, my, in my opinion, not the best move. I stand by that. I mean, I, 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 mean, I wouldn't hand... I wouldn't hand a Highland, Highland Junior Isle as the first science fiction novel a kid would read. Now, now, so someone who's read enough science fiction, okay, then then and wants to know more about science fiction of the past rather than contemporary, okay, maybe. But but as but as an entry point into the genre, I think it's doing them a terrible disservice because, frank frankly, it's not uh, reflective of what the field is now and what if who cares about the what the see that's the thing because is, we it, want them to read timeline wasn't reflective of the field in 1982 because we want them to when read I'm reading more, and if they might bounce off 1950s <laughs> era books I just handed a kid it's a, I just handed a kid Anne of Green Gables a boy uh he read it through and he liked it that is an old book I don't say, know I'm, I, I'm not saying old books and this the I'm not saying all old books are bad, but old science fiction has particular problems with trying to read it decades later. Because I mean, historical historical novels are fine; they become they become uh, novels of the moment. Contemporary novels written in the past become historical novels. That's all fine and good. Fantasy novels are generally timeless; they don't age so much either, except for terms of morality and portrayals of various kinds of people and whatnot but science 
science fiction, when it ages, it undergoes a really weird transformation and it's, it doesn't become as immediately readable, in my opinion, as, as contemporary is for someone who's riven, who's grown up in the age. I mean, I mean, I mean, a 15 year old kid's going to look at a 1950s science fiction novel and going, what the heck is this? And they might like, okay, the science fiction is stupid and I'm not going to read science fiction anymore. I'm going to go play Xbox. I think that that's a theoretical. Um, uh, no, no uh, it, it is not theoretical. Um, I have evidence to back this up. James? Is it anecdotal evidence or is it because uh, it's not uh, look, it's a, well, I, I told, most of the people who James, most of the people James, who I know James, didn't read Heinlein. James, James right? Davis Nickel. Uh, he's a science fiction author and genre critic, and he occasionally gives classic science fiction stories and books to a bunch of kids to read and basically uh, checks on their reactions. And yeah, for the most part, they're, the, the kids, the, I mean, their teenagers are bouncing off of this stuff hard mm-hmm. because, because it's just so of because so, classic science fiction is just of such a different time to our contemporary time that there's no good way to feel your way into it. I mean, the Hobbit, I mean, fantasy, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings are always going to be contemporary. They're always going to be fine. They're always going to be good. Okay. Maybe, maybe women readers might have difficulty because they like women characters, but go get, <laughs> I had, I had difficulty with it at the time. I'm like, why are there no girls in this book? A Goldberry. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't notice it at the time because I, you know, I was reading for the adventure, but, but trying to, trying to hand the, um, trying to hand, a 1950s science fiction novel to a kid these days is from his, from his own experience or science 50s story. It just doesn't work. And, I think and that, I think that that's just that. a true of, I think that that's just true of kids. So when I was a kid, I was the only one I knew who was reading Heinlein. I never met anybody who read Heinlein except for my uncle. I think that most people who are real readers, the ones who read a ton, like you, are weirdos. Super weirdos. That's why we're friends. Because <laughs> you've read a lot of books, and I've read a lot of books, and we're in different countries and different time zones. And the only reason um, you know, that we even met each other is because we're so weird that we could possibly have... So, like, you've- worrying... Like, like dude i i know lots of people who have read books and they read books in a way that you and i don't uh you you read a lot of series but you you just seem to be omnivorous in in fast whereas i'm slow yeah i, I am in the first and so i i'm i because i'm so slow i have to be selective but once i find something i like i go i read read the hell out of it and because i do it continuously so i you know most most people, most of my students don't read anything, right? Ever except what they're forced to in school. So my my idea is that if if you were to go back in time and say there was uh, this possibility of you reading these books and let's not have that happen, I think my life would be far worse and that I'd be a worse person. And I, I agree with you. Bigger mistakes. Um, and so I want that opportunity uh, for. I mean, this is why I think it would be great if they were public domain, because then they don't have to be marketed in the shitty way they are, which is basically not at all. Um, 
people can spread it around as as how they like and and you know the 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 power of lovecraft right this is a guy who who was respected a lot of people say didn't get any respect at the time he was highly respected by everybody and everybody who read his stuff thought he was amazing at the time right everybody in in the letters columns you read them over and over everybody's saying oh i wish he'd do some more lovecraft they they also like some people nobody reads anymore uh, but everybody was consistent and saying he's amazing he's wonderful um so it wasn't like he he wasn't getting any respect but once you know it's in the public domain and it can really be out there people you know there's three or four you know posts a day on every practical website out there about a new lovecraft story somebody read and this is stuff you should bounce off of harder than anything right the prose is archaic and 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 convoluted the uh, racism is super high and it's almost no female characters at all this is this is something that you know is difficult to imagine anybody liking and yet it's there and I would see say that there's been a massive decline in Heinlein's stuff because of of the cop, the copyright state it's in it's it's protected and nobody owns it. I, right? I, I the 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 Heinlein estate does. I think that is another. The, the, uh, the estate doesn't even exist. It's the trust. The trust now. Right? now. I, I I think which is some corporation, right? That wants to license. Like oh, come on. Yeah. I. It's no. There's no. There's no champion for it. Uh, here I am. I'm saying it's wonderful, also terrible. Wonderful um, and terrible. Uh, wonderful and terrible. And and uh, I, getting a copy to a, a kid. I don't know anybody who who owns a Kindle. I've never I've never seen a Kindle in real life, Paul. I can I can see mine from where I'm sitting. You you have a okay, Kindle. Okay, but I thought you said I was a weirdo. So there you go. You are. And uh, I, I know that there are, they must exist because I hear about them all the time. So I believe they exist. I've seen <laughs> pictures of them, but I've never seen one in real life. But I do see a few books on some people's shelves. So uh, this is a long way to go to yeah, say I, that I, this I, was I, both a great and terrible novel. Yep. I, let, let, let's end Oof. it at that for the listeners. This is a great and terrible <laughs> novel. And probably in 10 years, I'll probably want to have to reread it again. Oh, no. I might go with you. Oh, no. Yeah, it, you know it. You know it. You know it, Jesse. 10 years from now, we're going to be thinking, oh, I remember. That was great. Wonderful. There's so many good scenes. Do you remember that part where he's rubbing his hands? This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.